This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts. Having trouble finding shirts that fit? At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Shirts start at $80 and delivered in just two weeks. Perfect fit is guaranteed, and if a shirt doesn't fit, they'll remake it for free. The whole process is risk-free. For premium quality, perfect-fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com manliness and use gift code manliness to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. Again, propercloth.com manliness, gift code manliness for $20 off your first custom shirt. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So are people mostly good or mostly bad? Now, we're apt to think of ourselves as good people while thinking of the general population as not so stellar. My guest today argues that most people, including yourself, are really best described as a mixed bag. His name is Christian Miller. He's a professor of moral philosophy and religion at Wake Forest University. And today on the show, we discuss his new book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? We begin our conversation discussing how Christian defines the extreme ends of the character spectrum and why very few people can be described as entirely virtuous or vicious. Christian then highlights psychological studies that highlight both bad news and good news as to whether humans tend to have praiseworthy or blameworthy character. And these studies also suggest that whether we behave virtuously or viciously often depends on the context we find ourselves in. We then discuss how to close the gap between how we should act and how we do act, including practices that strengthen our ability and desire to do the right thing. We end our conversation discussing how all world religions provide structure and moral development and why we should be slow to call ourselves and others good or bad people. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash character gap. Christian Miller, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. So you're a, f- a professor of philosophy at Wake Forest University, and your focus is contemporary ethics and philosophy of religion. Uh, what's contemporary ethics? I, I took an ethics class in college, and we it's sort of like a overview. So we talked about utilitarianism, Aristotelian virtue ethics, Kant. So what's contemporary ethics? Sure. So the contrast is really with historical ethics. So I, I don't study too much what people said in the past, going back and kind of digging into Plato or Aristotle or Kant, I'm really much more interested in ethical debates that are going on today and what we as philosophers might contribute to them. And the way I see contemporary ethics is kind of dividing up into three areas. There's what's called meta-ethics, which has to do with the foundations of morality. Where does morality come from? What is the source of morality? Is it objective for all human beings? Or is it just a matter of social or individual construction? That's a relativist position. Another area of contemporary ethics is what we might call ethical theory or normative ethics. And that's what you were alluding to. That's where we look at different accounts of moral right and wrong, different theories, which try to give us guidance to figure out what the right thing to do is and the wrong thing to do is. So you would give examples like utilitarianism or Immanuel Kant's ethics or Aristotelian virtue ethics. And then there's a third side to contemporary ethics, which is applied ethics, where you really get into some of the the controversial issues of the day, like abortion or the death penalty or stem cells or cloning or these kind of things. So it's a huge field in way more than any one philosopher can really get, get a handle on. And I just kind of pick and choose what interests me the most. And that tends to be matters of character, matters of virtue, and also issues at the foundation of morality. Where does morality come from? And it seems uh, from the book, we'll talk about the book here in a bit, like that you um, take a look a, a lot at like psychological research and, and you know, looking at ethics. Right. That's, that's correct. And that's a little bit unusual, especially maybe like 50 years ago or, or 30 years ago, philosophers weren't doing that much at all. But in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a, a kind of a groundswell of interest in drawing on psychological research to help philosophers do ethics. Now, you might wonder, well, how? I mean, what, what relevance does it have to play? In my own research on character, it, it works like this. As a philosopher doing ethics, I can kind of think about questions that are more normative or more evaluative. Questions like, what kind of character should we have? What does a virtue look like? What is an honest person? But I can't get much insight into another set of questions, which are ones about how we're actually doing today. So 
As a matter of fact, what does most people's character look like? Is it a good character? Is it a bad character? Is it somewhere in between? Are we, by and large, virtuous, vicious, or neither? So for that more empirical question, more descriptive question, I can't sit here in my armchair, which I'm sitting in right now, and kind of pontificate about the deep questions. I need some hard data to wrap my mind around. And for that, I could go to different places. I could go to religion. I could go to history. I could go to current events. Plenty of things going on today uh, that could be useful to think about what our character looks like in, in politics, for example. But what I prefer to do is to consult psychology and look to very carefully constructed psychological experiments, which put people into morally relevant situations. For example, give them an opportunity to cheat or not cheat, steal or not steal, lie or not lie, hurt or not hurt, help or not help, and find out what happens. So do these participants in this study actually step up to the plate and help someone when there's a need or not? Or do, when they think they can get away with it, do they cheat or not? And so after looking at not just one study, because that wouldn't tell us much, but after looking at a, a whole wealth of studies, hundreds and hundreds of studies going back uh, in psychology to the 1950s and 1960s, I can kind of craft a picture of what our character actually likes, looks like, and then compare that as a philosopher to what I think our character should look like and see what the difference is. All right. So this is a good segue to the book because it's called The Character Gap. So it's, you're basically looking at what we think, how we should behave, but then what really what, how do we behave on a day-to-day basis? So before we get into the gap that you, you say exists, let's, how do you define what it means to have good character or bad character? I think that's a word, you know, those are, that's a word that gets thrown out around a lot since you're a kid, like you got to be a person of good character, but no one really tells you exactly what it means, but you have a rough idea. So as a, as an academic, you want to get very specific. So how do you define someone with good character? Sure, that's a great question. And I guess it's even more confusing because people talk about character in other ways too. Like they talk about characters in novels, like talk about characters in plays. And I even, you know, when I'm talking about my research, I get people looking at me oddly. They, they think, do I go to a lot of plays or do I read a lot of novels to do my research? And I say, wait, wait, wait. No, let's start at the very beginning by defining our terms so that we're not talking past each other. That's, that's what philosophers should always do. So here I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about moral character. And moral character comes in two varieties. There's a good moral character, which, is, which are the virtues. And then there's bad moral character, which are the vices. So examples of virtues include things like compassion, honesty, courage, bravery, temperance, justice, fortitude, generosity, and the like. Now, may, merely saying that good character is to be understood as the virtues just shifts the question over to what is a virtue. And I think of a virtue as having two main components or parts to it. There's our behavior, and then there's the underlying psychology behind our behavior. And both are really essential to being a virtuous person. So to make it a little bit more concrete, let's take a particular virtue like honesty. So an honest person is expected to display honest behavior, not just once, like, you know, as if I telling the truth one time gets me enough credit to count as honest in general. No, it's not just once, but repeatedly over time. And not just in one type of situation either. So I don't get to count as honest just because I'm honest in the courtroom. I have to be stably honest in my behavior over time and across a variety of situations relevant to honesty. So the courtroom, the party, the office, the home school, wherever those might be. So that's, in a, in a nutshell, the kind of behavioral side of having good character, which I'm understanding as virtuous character. But there's more to it than that. Mere behavior, even if it's admirable and praiseworthy, isn't enough to qualify as being virtuous. Why? Well, because underlying motivation in particular matters too. If we just exhibit good behavior, but for poor reasons, morally disadmirable or unfortunate reasons, then we don't get to qualify as virtuous. So again, uh, let's make it a little bit more concrete with an example. We said honest behavior, that's one part of it. But if I'm just telling the truth so that I don't get punished or so that I just make a good impression on some people I'm trying to impress, those aren't the kind of reasons we would expect a virtuous person to be acting upon. 
They're merely self-interested, focused on myself and my own benefit, and they're not good enough, praiseworthy, to count as virtuous motives, which you need in order to have a virtuous character. So to sum it up and, and kind of boil it down to one sentence, having good character involves having the virtues, and the virtues require virtuous motivation and virtuous behavior as well. Gotcha. And so I imagine uh, someone who's a vicious person would be just the the same thing, right? Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting how you can just flip that and get a vicious person. So a vicious person is also you know kind of reliable in their behavior, repeatedly doing vicious things, and across a variety of situations. So the cruel person isn't just cruel, you know, in in the forest or at the office or anything like that. In one kind of narrow situation, it's uh, across a variety of situations and for underlying cruel motivation as well, because they want to hurt other people or because they you know, take pleasure in the suffering of others. So the one caveat to all that, though, is the vicious people who are somewhat careful about it, who have some kind of you know, cleverness about being vicious, they won't advertise their vice. So whereas you might see a virtuous person you know, telling the truth in a lot of different situations or being generous to others in lots of different situations. You may not see a cruel person being cruel in a lot of different situations when others are watching them because they know they're liable to get punished. Uh, they'll get in trouble, go to jail or whatnot. So they're reliable in their behavior, but typically when they think they can get away with it and no one's looking. Gotcha. So, I mean, that, that's interesting. An interesting definition of virtue because it's very stringent. And, I, and particularly the, the motivation part, I'm sure gets really tricky because okay, yeah, I went you know, went to law school, and you know some crimes you have to figure out intent, motivation, and that's really hard to do. Like it's like mens rea to get inside someone's mind. So how do you, as a philosopher using psychology, figure out the intent of people? Because people can say, "Well, I did it for you know X altruistic reason," but like really the reason was the other, something else that was uh, more self motivated. Right, exactly, and and I mean, let's be upfront about it. It's very, very hard. And there, there are no easy answers here. Let me, instead of talking in the abstract, let me give you an actual illustration of how a, a psychologist has gone about doing this in the case of a, of a really important moral situation. So this psychologist, whose name is Batson, wanted to understand why people who feel empathy are much more likely to help those in need. So this is a long-standing phenomenon in psychology, well-documented going back 50 years, that when you empathize with the suffering of others, you're much more likely to help them than if you don't empathize. So empathy, empathy here, kind of adopting their mindset and trying to understand the world from their perspective. So why is that? You know, what, what's the underlying psychological or motivational explanation? And there are you know, dozens of possibilities here. M- many of them have to do with self-interest. So maybe you help because you want to make a good impression, or maybe you help because you want to get some kind of reward, or maybe you help because you want to avoid some kind of punishment. Lots and lots of different explanations. So what Batson did is he tried to kind of map them out, all the possibilities, and then test them to see which one was the correct one. And how, do you, how could you test them? Well, you could see what predictions each explanation will give. So if this explanation is correct, it would predict people would behave this way. If this other explanation is correct, it would be, predict that people would behave in another way, and another way, and another way, and another way. So different psychological explanations of motivation generate different predictions about how we would behave. So what he did was he got people together, put them in these different situations, and see, did they behave the way that was predicted? What's, what's, the, what's the upshot of it? Well, time and again, the predictions failed. Every single prediction that was based on an egoistic motivation, a motivation that says, I'm helping others so that I might benefit in some way, failed in the lab. The only explanation was a different motivational one that had to do with selflessness, being altruistic, caring about the good of others for their own sake. That explanation, time and time again, lined up with how people actually behaved in different situations. So his conclusion, after 30 years of research and well over 30 different experiments, I, okay, I kind of lost track how many it was, was that the most plausible explanation in this particular instance 
is that people are motivated by selfless, non-egoistic motives to help others when they feel empathy for their suffering. Well, so I hear that. And the thing that came to my mind when I read that was, what about like objectivist, right? Uh, Like sort of Anne Rind folks who say like, well, yeah, people are altruistic, but they're altruistic for selfish reasons. Like it feels good. Mm -hmm. So in the end, even altruistic motivations are selfish because yeah, I mean, it does. It feels good when you help people. Like I feel good whenever I help somebody. Great, great. So there are a couple of things to, to disentangle here. A quick aside about Ayn Rand and objectivists. What they, I'm not an expert on their views, but what I see them typically being interested in is a different question about what we should do. So rather than the empirical question, are we always, as a matter of fact, motivated by self-interest? What they will often try to convince us is that we should be motivated by self-interest, whether we are, in fact, motivated by self-interest. So their position is what's called ethical egoism. This is a ethical theory about how we, in fact, should live our lives. Whether we want to get into that or not, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to. I, don't, I personally think that's a really, really hard theory to accept. Very, very pro- problematic theory. But that's not the main focus of your question. You're, you're saying, well, isn't it often the case that when we help others, we often feel good as well in the process? And so doesn't that ultimately render all of our helpful behavior egoistic, kind of benefiting ourselves? And, and the, the key distinction I want to make here, and this is one I actually like to use with my students, and I think, it's, I think it's really valuable, is the difference between a goal and a mere side effect or byproduct. So to take an analogy, when I'm driving my car, my goal is to get to my office or wherever I happen to be going. A byproduct is that my car is emitting exhaust into the environment. That's not my goal, unless I was some kind of weird polluter, you know, like my goal was to pollute the atmosphere as much as possible. That sounds really strange. That's not my goal. It's just a, a byproduct or side effect of driving my car is that it pollutes the environment. Well, apply that distinction and analogy here. When we help others, it's true that oftentimes it is for egoistic or selfish reasons. That, that's, that, you can't deny that. But what is interesting is that Batson's research and others have found that in certain cases, it seems like we care about the good of others selflessly, independent of whether we benefit or not. And if we happen to benefit, if we happen to be feel good about it, pleased that we did it, that's great, but it's a mere side effect or byproduct. Our goal, just like in driving the car, is to get to the destination. Here the destination is helping my friends or relieving that person suffering in Africa. And a side effect or byproduct like the exhaust is I get to feel good or pleased about it in the process. So altruism needn't be, you know, kind of drudgery. It needn't be like, I'm, I have to put myself through this with no benefit at all. You can benefit. It's just not your goal. It comes along for the ride. Gotcha. And it, that reminds me of, uh, I think, something Victor Frankl wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning. He says, like, if you you aim for happiness or joy or satisfaction, like, you usually miss it. So, like, I imagine if you you go into an, an, uh, an ethical decision thinking, well, I'm going to do the right things to make me feel good, like, you probably won't feel good, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, that's, that, that quote is, is absolutely in line with what I was just saying. So, if you're trying in life to find happiness and that's your, your goal, your, your own happiness, that may be a frustrating way to become actually happy. Uh, better to invest yourself in other pursuits, which have as a byproduct or side effect that you become happy. Much more reliable way to actually become happy in life. So a good person with good character, virtuous person does the right thing consistently you know, for the right reasons, right? So who are some examples, some concrete examples, flesh and blood examples of, he would say, well, yeah, they're probably a, a virtuous person. Good. And, and that probably is important. Uh, as right. we've talked about already, you know, we can't kind of peer into the minds of others. And since motivation is essential too, you know, we really can't be sure. But I think we can agree on some likely examples. So we can go in a variety of different directions here. You can actually kind of go to, to fiction and look at some exemplars from works of fiction. For example, the, uh, in Les Mis, the bishop who helps out Jean Valjean and gives him the candlesticks instead of sending him to prison. You can go to religious exemplars and, and heroes throughout different religions, people like 
you know, Jesus or Confucius or Buddha. You can just talk about heroes and moral saints and exemplars from the histories of different countries. So in our case, we like to point to people like Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman. The one other way to go, though, is to kind of look in your own life. And people who maybe don't have a lot of celebrity status, but who you deeply admire for some aspect of their character. Maybe they're not perfect in every respect, but in one respect, they show a lot of integrity or they, they exhibit a lot of courage in this case, or they stood up for something that they thought was just. And this might, you know, this could be your neighbor. It could be, you know, someone, you, a coworker. It could be a family member. So there, there may be, and I hope there are, virtuous people in our day-to-day lives. And they actually can have a big psychological impact on our becoming better people too. Gotcha. And so a vicious people, I think the obvious, you know, Hitler would probably be one that people would say was a vicious person, probably a vicious person. Right. So that, that's, that's, that's a pretty safe one. I right. think uh, that's my, my kind of go-to one of my ethics classes. <laughs> right. It's on the cover. Uh-huh. You got Hitler there at the bottom there. Yeah. And that, that, that helps too. That's right on the cover of my book um, <laughs> has the exemplar of, of vice. Uh, but you know, plenty of other ones we could talk about too. If you want to do political leaders, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot. Again, if you want to go kind of fictional, you can say like, um, some fun ones to talk about are people like Scrooge, for example, or the Grinch. And before he, you know, later at, at the end of the book, before he has his conversion, the Grinch who wants to steal Christmas. And then, you know, some ones that are a little closer to home in American society. I'm not going to get into any kind of political matters here, but serial murderers and rapists, Ted Bundy and, and the like come to mind. So sadly, it's easy to come up with examples of vice as it is easy to come up with examples of virtue. All right. So those are the like, extremes, right? People who mm-hmm. are virtuous, exemplars of people who are vicious. What about just most people? Are most people good or most people vicious? Because like, there's a lot of people different have different approaches to that. Like, well, yeah, and people are just terrible right, right. <laughs> uh, for the most part. And then they do good occasionally or no, people are inherently good for the most part. And then sometimes they do bad things. What What's your take? Right. So, I mean, first we'd have to kind of talk about what good and bad mean. Well, we've already done that. And then we'd have to to next ask, well, how are we going to decide where, how most people are? And I've already indicated I'm going to look to the psychological evidence, but that's only one way to go here. You might want to look to other sources of information. But being clear that I'm going to turn to psychology here, two things emerge to me. First of all, psychological research on what people think they're like, and then psychological research, which I think reflects how people actually are. So, on the first one, people tend to have a high opinion of their own moral characters. So if you, have a, if you give people a survey, say, uh, from one to five, where one is gonna kind of core character and five is very good character, most people will say they're about a four out of five. They have, you know, they're not going to say they're perfect or they're really, really good, but they say they've got a pretty good character. And that's true not just in general, but on specific virtues like uh, honesty and generosity. It's also cross-culturally been demonstrated, so it's true in Brazil just as it's true in in the United States. Now, is that accurate? Are people's self-assessments reflecting what their underlying character is like? And my takeaway from the psychology research, where you actually put people into different situations and see, lo and behold, what do they do? I tend to think that the assessments are inflated. My, my own as well, I should say that you know, I'm not you know, standing up here as some exception from the crowd who's got it all figured out. I thought I had a pretty good character before I got into this research too, and I've had to kind of ratchet it down. So what I end up concluding is that we have what I call a mixed character, one which is not vicious. So that's kind of you know good news there. Let's not you know let's not overlook the fact that it's not vicious, but on the other hand, it's not virtuous either. So our character is not good enough to qualify as virtuous, but not bad enough to qualify as vicious. It's a mixed bag of some good features, which will, in many situations, lead us to behave quite admirably. But on the other hand, some other features, which are morally quite disadmirable or unfortunate, which will, in certain situations, lead us to do terrible things. I'd be happy to give some examples of each, but as far as what my overall conclusion is, that's where what I understand most people to be like, where the most is important. I think of this as a bell curve, with some exceptions, as we've already talked about, there are some outliers on the virtue side, like Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Tubman, and there are some outliers on the vicious side, people like Ted Bundy and Hitler. 
Uh, but most of us, I think, are in this kind of murky middle. So let's look at some of the uh, experiments in psychology that bolsters this argument that people are not either really virtuous or vicious. We're either, we could be either depending on sometimes the situation, right? That's right. Right. So do you want the uh, more positive? You want, should we do the more positive or the more negative first? Let's do more. Let's do, let's do bad news first. Good news okay. last. Get out of the way. Right. Okay. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one. And if you want some more examples, you can, you can ask me for more, but let's, let's take this one because it's pretty well established in the psychological research. Some other studies there's some concerns these days about whether they're replicating or whether they were just kind of one-off, not really uh, kind of illuminative about our character. But this one uh, goes back to the 1960s, and it's been replicated time and time again, so it's pretty, pretty solid. Uh, it has to do with helping, or in this case, not helping, when an emergency is going on. These are the early studies were what led to what's now called the bystander effect or the group effect, and they involve you coming into the lab signing up and agreeing to be part of a study, taken into a room, given some materials to fill out, a survey, your task is to fill out this survey. The person in charge leaves, comes back a few minutes later with another person who looks like they're a different volunteer for the same study. They're given the same materials to fill out and told to sit at the same desk or same table you're at. So the two of you are working away at your survey materials. The person in charge has left, gone into her office, and, you know, so far, so good. But then after a few minutes, you hear a loud crash and then screams of pain. And the person in charge is saying things like, ouch, ouch, this, this, this bookshelf has fallen on top of me. Ouch, I can't get it off. My leg, my leg, my leg. What would you do? Well, I'm not going to ask you, you know, I'm not going to put you on the spot. But, but overwhelmingly, I think we would say, uh, yeah, I, would, I would do something, right? People would say, of course, I would come to the assistance of the person who's just had this emergency in the next room. Well, it depends. If the stranger who's with you in the room doesn't do anything and continues to fill out that survey as if nothing's happened, it's overwhelmingly likely that you will do nothing yourself. In the original study from 1969, only 7% of participants did anything to help when that emergency happened in the next room, whether that was getting up and opening the door, or even just calling out and saying, do you need help? Only 7% did anything. In contrast, when participants were by themselves, these are different pe- people, different, different day, different, you know, different study, when they were brought into the room by them and put in the room by themselves, filling out the survey, and then an emergency happens in the next room, 70% helped in that kind of situation. So 7D versus 7 that's a huge effect in psychology. And it's you know nice that the 70% helped, but really unfortunate, and, and I think a, a bad reflection on our character, that only 7% were willing to help when there was lack of helping seen by a stranger. Yeah, we've that's one illustration. Right. Like we've seen this uh, in real life. Like not too long ago, there was that guy who had a heart attack during the middle of Black Friday sale at Target and he, you know, keeled over mm-hmm. and people just stepped over him. That's right. Yep. So I, I, I talk about that example. And just to make sure that these studies are not something we're treating as just academic, you know, exercises or something like that that have no real world implications, this is a study that has clear real world implications. The uh, particular one I'll elaborate a little bit more that you're referring to is just one of hundreds of instances in our society where an emergency happens and there's no helping because people are in a group and they kind of defer to what the group's doing as opposed to rising to the challenge. So in this particular instance, this man in his 60s had a heart attack in a a store. It was a, a Target store, Black Friday. There were lots of shoppers trying to get the best deals for themselves. And he was doing some Christmas shopping in advance of, of Christmas. And, and you know, if you, you saw that happen, what would you do? Well, again, you would expect that you and others would come to the assistance of this man. But it was a crowded store, you know, and the deals were, you know, flying off the shelves pretty fast. So what ended up happening is that the shoppers kind of just ignored him. It's not that they didn't see him. They saw him, but they didn't do anything. In fact, in some cases, they would turn around and go in the other direction. Or even more dramatically, they would step over his body to make sure that they got to where they wanted to go. And it was only after quite some time that some nurses uh, recognized what was going on and stepped up to the plate, called 911. 
but unfortunately he died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. So a real world demonstration of a failure of character. Right. And you see that and you're like, man, people are just terrible. Like yeah. <laughs> people suck. You, 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 you could think that. And, and in that particular instance, their behavior was not admirable. I mean, we just, we should accept that, be upfront about that. But it's a jump to go from one behavior to how a person is in general. That's a bad philosophical inference. It's, it's a bad behavior, but that does not automatically make a person a bad person. And it needs to be weighed against other kinds of behavior, other instances where perhaps people are behaving quite admirably. So if, if you like, I'd be happy to, uh, to switch to some more positive news. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. There are job sites that send you tons of the wrong resumes to sort through or make you wait for the right candidates to apply to your job. That's not smart, but you know what is smart? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness to hire the right person. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's powerful matching technology, scans thousands of resumes, identifies people with the right skills, education, experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And also, when you post to ZipRecruiter, you post once and it's going to go out to all the job boards out there, right? So no more having to go to multiple job sites to post your job. You just do on a ZipRecruiter, it's one and done. No more sorting through the wrong resumes. No more waiting for the right candidate to apply. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. And this rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. So if you are a hiring manager at a corporation or you're a small business owner and you want to try ZipRecruiter, I got a deal for you. You can use it for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Also by RX Bar. So here in the K household, we are connoisseurs of protein bars and RX Bars are some of our favorite. RX Bar believes in the power of transparency and lets the core ingredients do all the talking. That's why they list their ingredients right on the front of the packaging. They're the ones who use egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like sea salt or cinnamon. RX Bar comes in 14 delicious flavors like mango pineapple, chocolate chip, peanut butter, and other seasonal flavors. Peanut butter is my favorite. RX Bars are gluten-free, soy-free, and free of artificial flavors and preservatives. They're great for a number of occasions like breakfast on the go, pre-workout snack, or a 3 p.m. pick-me-up at the office. They're also great when you're going out on a hike. RX Bar just debuted a new product called RX Nut Butter. Each single-serve packet contains delicious creamy nut butter with 9 grams of high-quality protein and comes in three flavors, honey, cinnamon, peanut butter, delicious, peanut butter, and vanilla almond butter. It's squeezable and spreadable and pairs great with fruit, rice cakes, pretzels, or straight out of the pouch. I've, yeah, I've given you my favorites. Check out Honey Cinnamon Peanut Butter for the RX Nut Butter and the Peanut Butter Bar on the RX Bar. They're delicious. If you want to get 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash manliness. Enter promo code manliness at checkout. Again, 25% off your first order by visiting rxbar.com slash manliness and enter promo code manliness at checkout. And now back to the show. Yeah, let's get the positive. All right. So in some situations when there's lots of people, we tend to do the not the not good thing. What's something like an example of, you know, people shows that people are no, people are have the capability of doing good. Yeah. So uh, this will actually reference back to the, the example that comes to mind most immediately references back to our earlier discussion of empathy. So in Batson's research on empathy, we have already said that he's seen how adopting an empathetic state of mind can lead to vastly increased helping. So let me give you a, a more uh, specific illustration of this. In one of his studies, the, uh, the, the participants were students in a class at a university, and the professor went into the class and described what had happened to another student at the university, not in a class, but just at the, some you know, student that no one knew had been in a terrible car wreck and needed a lot of help. And well, what happened? Would the students in the class step up to the plate and help or not? Well, it, it depended. Uh, if they were, and it, this is, um, let me do a little bit more setup first. If a group of those students had been given an empathy manipulation, in other words, they had been told to try and kind of think about the world from the perspective of the student who's been in this terrible car wreck and think about the suffering she's undergoing, then those students were very willing to help out 76% of them were willing to volunteer to help the student, Katie Banks, and on average donate an hour and a half of their time. Now, this is a student who they never met. They're probably never going to come across in their you know, four years of college. They have got a lot on their plates, but they were willing to do that as compared to another group of the students in the class who had just been the control group told 
you know, just think about what had, had happened to Katie, but had to, been told nothing about adopting her perspective. Only 33% of them were willing to volunteer to help Katie. So 33% versus 76% volunteering to help a stranger at their school based upon whether they empathized with their suffering or not. That's really impressive, I think. Really admirable. And then you add to that the second thing we talked about already when it came to empathy, that their willingness to volunteer and help likely stemmed from selfless motivation, genuinely altruistic motivation, because they were concerned about the suffering of Katie for its own sake and helping her in her difficult situation. That just makes it even better. So this is not limited to universities or to Katie Banks or anything like that. It looks like we have, as part of our character, a genuine capacity to help others selflessly in a variety of situations. But that's alongside different capacities, which will lead us to not help others in other situations. So it's a pretty mixed bag. Yeah. Another kind of mixed bag thing that you highlighted some of the research you highlighted. So everyone's probably seen read about the the research that was done in the 50s and 60s with the electric shocks. Is that Milligram who did that? That's right. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, everyone probably has read that. So like some guy, you went in and you were told that someone on the other side was taking a test and they got the answer wrong. You're supposed to give them a shock and the shocks got progressively higher and higher till basically you killed the person. And someone, like the, the experimenter was over this participant's shoulder and said, you know, initiate the shock and like people kept doing it. And I guess this was the show that, you know, explain why people during the Holocaust, right, were willing to murder people because they were, they were ordered. Basically, they were putting the responsibility on the, the higher up for the bad behavior. They weren't taking, taking personal responsibility. But you even highlight, so this experiment shows, yeah, people, if they're put in that situation, they're going to do terrible things. But you say that, no, actually the research, if you look at it more carefully, it's a lot more it's a mixed bag um, because when people were doing, you know, turning the notch up on this this shock thing, like they were distressed that they were doing it. So that indicates, like, no, these people weren't terrible; they weren't psychopaths. Like they felt really bad about doing this, but you know, nonetheless, they did it anyway. That's right, and that's really, really a helpful presentation. So I think there are a couple respects in which the Milgram studies, which seem like kind of paradigm studies of bad character don't actually warrant that inference. So what you've highlighted is the struggle that the participants went through. A vicious person, as we highlighted earlier, is someone who's kind of wholeheartedly invested in doing what they're doing, whether it's being cruel or being selfish or, or whatnot. So they're, they're not very conflicted about it. They're just kind of on board with it. They're ready to go. Well, the participants in the study, they first of all, many of them verbally said things like, you know, do I have to continue? Can I stop now? And then the authority figure would put more pressure on them. They would say things like, please continue, or we need these results, or you must go on. So they were already showing verbal signs of uh, hesitancy and conflict. But then there were also some kind of uh, more internal psychological signs too. They would, uh, you know, they, they would shake or they would be nervous, or afterwards they would be sweating a lot. Sometimes they would have kind of breakdowns or they would be crying or whatnot. Not, not everyone, but an, enough of them to suggest that this is not the picture of a vicious person. It's a pers- picture of a conflicted person, a person who's really struggling with what the right thing to do is in a very, very challenging situation. And there's, there's another way you can also take it in a more positive direction too, which is that Milgram didn't just do the famous version, which we all know about. So the, the one where the participant comes in, turns up the dial under pressure from the authority figure, and about 66% of participants go all the way to the XXX or the lethal level of shock. He tried out all kinds of other variations. For example, where there's no authority figure at all. And it's just the participants and the test taker in the other room. Well, in that kind of case, if people were really vicious, they, they could you know, turn up the shock dial as much as they wanted. It's not like you know, anything's really changed as far as inflicting pain on the other person if they wanted to do that. But lo and behold, without the authority figure, participants overwhelmingly just went up a little bit. They turned up the shock dial a little bit, but then they, they stopped after it got clear that they were causing some harm, or so they thought, to the test taker. So there, I think there are multiple respects in which this study actually helps support my mixed picture of character, as opposed to a really kind of depressing, 
picture a vicious character. So as I've been hearing you describe these experiments, you know, one thing that pops up is that context matters. But that also raises another ethical question, a big one, like, does free will exist? Or do we just do what we do based on the situation we're in and we don't really choose? So I imagine you have to think about that too as a, as a philosopher. Right, and that's, that's a huge question. And uh, maybe you should have me yeah, back for that we're, one. Yeah, yeah, we're not going to get that done in the podcast here. <laughs> let's, let's, let's solve the free will problem here in, uh, in five minutes. Right. So, so uh, being clear that this is a huge question, and we know, you know, I'll just give you the most preliminary answer I can. You're, you're right. It raises all kinds of interesting questions, one of which is free will, and related to that very closely is moral responsibility and praise and blame. So let me, let me give you my take, real quick take on it. Yes, these studies illustrate how much context matters. So in one context where there's the authority figures next to you, that might lead someone to behave in a certain way. When there's no authority figure in the Milgram study, it leads to different behavior. When there's a stranger in the room who's doing nothing, you might do nothing yourself. When there's no stranger in the room, you might rise to the occasion and help in an emergency. So, but in a sense, we kind of knew this all along, the context matters. I mean, you know, what you do from moment to moment in your just ordinary life is very much a function of what kind of context you're in. You know, what, whether you're going to eat or not, or whether you're going to stand up or not, or whether you're going to speak or not. It'd be very appropriate to speak in certain instances. Context allows for it, encourages it. But in other instances, it would be very inappropriate. The context does not allow it, say, at a funeral, to just get up and start pontificating about something. So we already know that context matters a lot. But one thing that these studies illustrate is that context might matter in ways that are surprising, quite surprising, that we didn't recognize before. We might not appreciate how the stranger's behavior impacts us or how the authority figure's behavior impacts us so much. Okay, so that's one takeaway. On directly uh, the question of free will and responsibility, let me give you a kind of general uh, consensus about what's going on in philosophy and then tie it to character more specifically. So these days in philosophy, there's a large consensus that free will actually exists despite what you might have heard from other sources, maybe in the popular media or not. There's a few people deny free will outright, but uh, like I said, the overwhelming majority of philosophers are on board with free will. Now, it's crucial, though, in a longer discussion, we'd have to really parse this out to to settle what we mean by free will. And people mean different things, and there's more inflated notions and more deflated notions, so more robust notions and more kind of minimal notions and so some people think that certain kinds of free will are available and other kinds of free will are not available. My own take on this, and this is now c- coming back to the character literature too, is that situation matters a lot and environment matters and context matters a lot. But it's not like it determines completely what we're going to do. It's an input into our psychology. It gives us information but that our psychology then reflects on it, can reflect on it, can think about it, can process it, and can weigh up different choices as to how to proceed next. So I can get this information about my situation now, and then I can ask myself the question, should I tell the truth or should I tell a lie? And I can weigh different considerations for telling the truth and against telling the truth, et cetera, et cetera, and come to a conclusion about what I think is the right thing to do in that situation. And then subsequently perform that action. And the, the, the upshot and the summary now is that I think I can do that in a way that's free and that's praiseworthy or blameworthy, depending on whether I do the right thing or not. So there's still hope for agency in our psychology, even though our agency is very much influenced by what's going on in our situations. Okay, so if context matters, plays a role in how we behave, and we do have agency on what we do, doesn't have complete control, what can we do to close that character gap, right? Like, I think I'm going to say 99% of, my, of our listeners here, they want to be good people. What can they do to become more virtuous? Great, great. So let me just say real quickly, explain what the character gap is um, and why I titled the book The Character Gap. I mean by the character gap, just the gap between how we actually are which I say is a mixed bag, and how we should be as people, which I say is virtuous. 
So there's a gap, a character gap between how most of us are, in fact, not virtuous, myself included, and how we should be, which I say is a virtuous person. So given that gap, and I think it's pretty sizable, and the, the studies um, reflect that, we're not just helpless. It would be really a shame if I had ended the book by saying, there's this gap, and sorry, you know, see you later, you know, time to go home. But, but fortunately, I think there are some concrete steps we can take to try and bridge the gap or reduce the gap or whatever metaphor you want to use. And in the, the final section of the book, I outline some strategies which I think are not so promising, and I go into some strategies, strategies which I think are much more promising. So the key idea here, though, is that I don't think there's any magic formula. There's no 10-step uh, procedure. If you just did this, 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 bam, you're going to be an honest person. Uh, or, or take some, you know, metaphorically some pill that'll turn you into an honest person overnight. It's a slow, gradual process that takes months, years, and uh, really an entire lifetime. So having said that, what is available? Well, I could focus on three strategies, not as competitors, but actually I think we need all three and probably more as well. Maybe I'll, I'll give you one or two of them and you can, you can tell me how much further you want to get into them. So one uh, to start us off has to do with exemplars. And going back to our earlier conversation about good people, are there any examples of good people? So there's research that suggests that if we look to exemplars and moral saints, people who seem to have the virtues, and we admire them, we can also want to become more like them. So I, I look to Abraham Lincoln and I admire how honest he was, but I'm not just doing that at a distance, or maybe sometimes I am, you know, just kind of treat, treating him as some kind of interesting curiosity. It could also have a psychological impact on me in inspiring me to emulate him, inspiring me to become more like him, not in every respect, but when it comes to matters of telling the truth. And that's been found to be true for more historical exemplars, but the most impactful ones tend to be those who are in our daily lives. You know, the, the coworker or the family member or the neighbor who kind of exhibits courage or exhibits honesty or compassion for the poor. And then I see that, and that has a direct impact on my own character too. So one strategy uh, for bridging the character gap has to, be, has to do with seeking out and finding and then emulating people who are already doing much better than us. Another strategy, and you know, I'll, I'll stop with this one, has to do with learning more about our character so that more we are more aware of the obstacles inside of us to becoming virtuous. So when you read the psychological research, you're, at least I am, impressed that there are all kinds of ways in which we fall short of virtue that I didn't even know were there. And all these obstacles, like the group effect, for example. I, I, I was surprised to learn the impact that being in a group can have on my not helping others. Well, what I call the getting the word out strategy involves learning more about these obstacles, whether it's by reading the research, well, that's hard for our people in our busy lives, but you know, reading summaries of the research, reading popular presentations of the research, reading, listening to podcasts about the research, learning more about these obstacles so that we are more aware of them and can combat them when we need to. So that the next time I'm in a group and I see an emergency happening, someone's you know, fallen off their bike or is having a heart attack or whatnot, and the rest of the shoppers or the people at the park are just acting like nothing happened, initially I might hesitate, not do anything myself, but then I might be reminded, wait a minute, why am I hesitating? This isn't for any good reason. It may have to do with fear of embarrassment or something like that, or diffusion of responsibility onto other people. That's, that's not legitimate. That's not admirable. I need to step up to the plate here. Even though other people aren't helping, that doesn't justify my not helping. And so hopefully I will be more motivated to intervene. And then in fact, there's some, some, but not many studies which have found that to be the case. And then you talk about, and also in the book, that chapter dedicated, like religion seems to do all sort of these things in a, in a systematic way, right? There's like exemplars, moral exemplars. Christianity has Jesus. Buddhism has the Buddha. So you look at these people, they inspire you. There might even be individuals within your congregation or whatever that inspire you to live virtuously. And even like scripture in different religions, they 
they play they play up the fact that you have a tendency to do the wrong thing in certain situations. So understand that so you can do the right thing. Right. That, that's exactly right. So at the end of the book, I have a final chapter on religion. And what I am thinking there is, look, most people these days report that they're religious. And this is also true throughout human history. And at least the major world religions have had a lot to say about character. So it would be a shame to not at least take a look at some of their writings and see if there are some helpful insights which we can glean from them, whether we're religious or not. So prior to that chapter, I had just been discussing character improvement from a secular perspective. And then then I switched to this religious perspective. For different audiences, I think it can still be helpful. For a secular audience, it can be helpful for them to see if there are some insights which might be applicable to them, uh, be kind of translated into more secular vocabulary and still be useful for character improvement. But uh, also for religious audiences, let's you know take a look at some of the ideas in your particular religious tradition that could be helpful supplements or additions to more secular approaches. And in this chapter, I focus specifically on Christianity because I didn't want to just do a really cursory overview of a variety of different religions, you know, like spend five pages on Hinduism and five pages on Confucianism and five pages on Judaism. I thought that would be so superficial and kind of insulting to the different religions. So I, I wanted to dive deeper into one religion, but then also stress that a lot of what I say maps on to other religions as well. So it's not by any means suggesting, and I would strongly oppose this suggestion, that Christianity has some kind of you know unique role to play when it comes to character building, as if no other religion had anything valuable to, to offer. So with that kind of framing and background in mind, you're quite right. Christianity, but also other religions have lots to say about exemplars. They, they point to, say, Jesus as the role model to follow. And also in Christianity, often the mention of saints as well, and, and the early followers of Jesus, like the apostles. They'll have some things to say about what the obstacles are to becoming a better person and how we might combat them. They'll have often a lot to say about what specific practices we can engage in, in our daily lives or in our weekly lives, what concrete things we can do, things like fasting or tithing, which in Christianity is a kind of commitment to give away a certain percentage of your income to charity, or prayer or volunteer work, these kind of specific practices. Confession is another one, which if you commit to them, can in the long run have character building implications. So something like confession would involve telling others, a priest, friends, a minister, or whatever, about the wrongdoings in one's life, which can foster things like humility, forgiveness, and compassion. So they have concrete, the point is, practices that can be implemented and utilized as a means of kind of getting us further on the path of bridging the character gap. And I imagine the community aspect is a, a big role too, right? You're around other people who are all trying to motivate each other to do good. That's right. And that's, that can be true in a secular context too, but it's uh, right. especially true in a religious context because the religions I'm familiar with the most, I wouldn't want to say all religions are like this, but the ones I'm familiar with the most outline practices for believers or followers to engage in but they rarely say that you're supposed to do that on your own, as if you're to kind of, here's what to do, and you know, see you later, do your best. It's rather, here are some things to do which could be helpful, and lo and behold, you're, you're not left to your own devices. You're going to be surrounded by a community of other people who are going to be doing the same thing. And that can be valuable in all kinds of ways. They can kind of mutually support each other. They can encourage each other. They can also provide exemplars and, and role models to each other in some respect or other. They can, in, in a kind of different way, be helpful in discipling and disciplining, words we may not, may, may make us a little bit uncomfortable, but just kind of calling out ways we might fall short in a loving, you know, hopefully in a loving and encouraging way. So it's uh, engaging in religious practices as part of a larger community, which is also engaging in those practices in a mutually reinforcing and supportive way. Right. And I also imagine too, there's the idea, you know, all these different religions, they, there's a belief that you can change, that you can get better, right? They, they don't assume like you're right. just stuck like this. No, there is a bit, there, you have the power with maybe the help of 
divine assistance to transcend. That's right. That's right. And it, it, it better be like that way because most of these religions also drive moral praise and blame to people. So, you know, they'll, they'll praise you for certain good acts and blame you for certain bad acts, whether that's God's going to do that or the gods are going to do that or, or, or karma is going to do that or, or something. So it looks like we're going to be held responsible. Well, if we can't do anything to change our characters, then that's, that's pretty, you know, it might be uh, unfair. Uh, but, you know, fortunately, the good news is that according to these religions, again, that I'm familiar with, I don't want to say all, we have a certain kind of character, but that character is malleable. And the expectation is that we, or perhaps we in conjunction with some divine assistance, are supposed to move our characters along in the direction that God or the gods or the religious authority intends that character to be and why that character to be in the first place. And this is, uh, thankfully, a, a commitment that's backed up as well by the psychological research. So, you know, again, it would be unfortunate if re- religious view said, you can change your character and here's some steps to do it. And the psychological research said, oh, well, actually, when we do the studies, it turns out that you can't change your character. It's stuck. Well, that would be unfortunate, but it's not the case. Psychological research backs up on empirical, purely secular empirical grounds, the idea that character can change slowly, gradually, but still change over time. So another takeaway from your research and your, your study of, of character that I, I think is important that I, that I took away from it is that, okay, none of us, like we don't, there's a character gap. Like there's a way we think we should behave, but we fall short of it. We can bridge the character gap. It's going to take a while. But I think an important takeaway from that is we should cut each other some slack, like everybody some slack. I mean, grace, maybe have some grace for, because like, you know, there other people are going to be, do, you know, bad things in certain situations, but they're also going to do praiseworthy things in certain situations. So, so instead of thinking like, man, that person's terrible. Well, maybe not. They might not be a terrible person, just the context and they're, maybe they're trying to do better. That's right. That's very, very, very well put. And I actually wish I had said more about that in the book. Um, I think it's a, that is definitely what I believe, but I think I didn't emphasize it enough as, as I should have. So there are a couple things strike me right off the bat. I would really commend the idea that we should not go from one action to a conclusion about someone's character. So, you know, just seeing someone cheat on a test, I wish we should be very nervous or, or like, careful to go from that to the conclusion that that person's a cheater in general. So action is one thing, character is another. In order to really get a good assessment of someone's character, we need to see how they behave over time and in our variety of situations. We need a lot, a kind of rich mosaic of their behavior and uh, you know, ideally also of their underlying psychology before we can reasonably make conclusions about their character. And then the other thing that really struck me about what you said is that don't be so sure that you wouldn't do the same thing yourself, right? So, you know, the, the Milgram experiment, they, Milgram, before he ran those experiments, kind of asked people on the street, what do you think you would do if you were in that kind of situation where you had the chance to turn up that shock dial and, you know, under pressure from an authority figure? Well, I, those people said what a lot of us would say, which is, you know, I would never do that. Or I would only turn up to a you know, moderate amount, but I would never turn all the way up to the lethal amount and kill someone. Well, you know, don't be so sure uh, about that. Uh, if you're actually in that situation, you might behave deplorably too, just like participants actually did, 66% of them, it turned out, when they were put in this situation that Milgram constructed. So I, I think your, uh, your choice of the word grace is, is very appropriate here. And now we don't want to Go too far on the opposite extreme and just kind of excuse right. everyone's behavior. No. And say, you know, but, uh, okay, yeah. you know, you're off the hook, or <laughs> right. you know, not that big a deal. You know, go about your business. But when it comes to judging and and forming conclusions based upon our judgment of other people's character, let's have some grace and let's have some caution. Humility, yeah, like don't, yeah, have some humility as you approach with yourself. And with other people. That's exactly right. I should have, I should have used the virtue term. It's yeah, really the best virtue <laughs> term there. Yep. Well, Christian, this has been a, a great conversation. There's some places people can go to learn more about your work because you know you, you've done a lot of research in writing about morality and ethics. I imagine there's more. Sure. Um, well, you know, based on our conversation, the, the natural starting point would be the, this book that we've talked about, the character gap. Beyond that, I would 
recommend that people perhaps visit my my website, which they can find at, at Wake Forest just by Googling my name in Wake Forest. I also am on Twitter and on Facebook at Character Gap. That's one word, no space, Character Gap. But then finally, I'm, I welcome kind of people reaching out to me directly. So my uh, email address is on my website too. And if someone has a, a question about character or ethics, more generally speaking, you know, I can't promise I will get back to you the very same day, but I, I will work my, really hard to get back to you within a few days and you know, help either say some things of a, uh, of a hopefully helpful manner or point the person to some readings which might be useful for that person. So I'm happy to be a resource in thinking about these matters. You know someone's going to ask you about free will if it exists. <laughs> well, I'll just, I'll just tell them to go, go read some books. Right. <laughs> yeah, there, 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 there are a couple of good books out there which would be a great starting point. Well, great. Well, hey, Christian, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me on. My guest today was Dr. Christian Miller. He's the author of the book, The Character Gap, How Good Are We? It's available on amazon.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash character gap, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. We got over 4,000 articles there. Also, if you haven't done so already, really appreciate if you guys review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. <laughs>